Welcome to the Trinity Galewood podcast. Here you'll find live messages recorded during our weekly services at Trinity. We are a community that desires to look, live, and love more like Jesus. We're located at 1701 North Narragansett in Chicago and meet every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Trinity Galewood podcast. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, that you are... You are good, that you are our Father, and that uh, you give us guidance for this life. And I pray, Lord, uh, today as we look into another one of uh, the challenging questions that many bring forward, I pray uh, that in a time of what might seem like confusion, I pray that we would have clarity and that we would see your love more fully. It's all in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Uh, If you've ever spent any time uh, reading the scriptures before, when you get to the New Testament, uh, the first four books are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, those uh, symbols right there are a part of the stained glass here in this building. And uh, it's important to know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are four different individuals, four different guys with four different cultural backgrounds speaking to four different audiences. But what is the same about all of them is that they're known as gospel writers, which means that they are teaching us about Jesus. They're writing an account as ones who saw firsthand what Jesus did as he walked the earth. And for us as a church here at Trinity, our mission is to look, live, and love more like Jesus. We really dive in deep to what these four guys had to say. And it's interesting because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels. When you read them, you will notice that they tell similar stories. They build off of each other. And oftentimes in the Bible, we read of these accounts that Jesus had, and they give us maybe new insights, or rather uh, similar insights, or what might seem to be contradictory insights to an event that happened as all three of them saw it happen. An example of this comes in Matthew chapter 20, which is also told in Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 42, and Luke 18, 35 through 43. I'll show it to you here. Matthew says it this way in Matthew chapter 20, verse 29. We'll use that as the primary text. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Now, when you read this exact same story in Mark chapter 10, Mark tells us that as Jesus and his disciples were coming to Jericho, and Luke tells us that that Jesus was drawing near to Jericho. You tracking with me here? Little the same, but kind of different. It continues on here. It says this, that two blind men were sitting by the roadside. Uh, Matthew tells us that there are two guys who are blind, but Mark tells us that there was one man and his name is Bartimaeus. Luke says it was just a blind man. And it continues, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. 
And it continues. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. And then Matthew records that Jesus had compassion on them and he touched their eyes. Mark says that he had compassion on them, but instead of touching their eyes, he says, go, your faith has made you well. No physical contact here. And Luke says the same thing. He says, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And we read, immediately they received their sight and they followed him. Now, if you're tracking with me, let's recap what we've learned so far. Matthew says that there are two guys that are blind, whereas Mark and Luke say, nope, there's just one guy. And Mark evidently like, got to know the guy and found out his name was Bartimaeus. We read that in this moment that there's a little bit of discussion around that Jesus was leaving Jericho or he was coming to Jericho. And we read in Matthew's account that Jesus made physical contact with these two guys and Mark and Luke say, no, he just had some really powerful words and then all of a sudden they were healed. Which leads us to this. Which one of these guys got it right? Right? All three of them saw it. Like, who's the credible source here? Who really knew what happened in this moment? But I think what's more important, and maybe a question that you have right now, which leads to what we're talking about today, is that if this event has some details that seem to be different, what does that say about the accuracy of the Bible? Is it really all that accurate of a text? Today, uh, we are continuing on in this series called You Pick. And if you were with us on Easter, you had 15 different topics to select. And you guys decided to pick the hardest of the 15. Thanks a lot. All right. And this was one of them that uh, came forward here for us to take some time on a Sunday morning to talk about. How do we deal with the contradictions in the Bible? I think it's fascinating because we live in a world today that just uh, really dials in into the accuracy of statements. Have you ever thought about this before? Like if I were to give you a stat on like 80% of people love pizza, you would automatically start to begin, well, where are you pulling that? Are we talking about Chicago kind of pizza? Or are we talking New York kind of pizza? This is the world that we live in, right? We argue about the accuracy of statements, so much so that when we see a major event happening, one of the first things that we do is we pull out our cell phone and start to record it. You know what I'm saying? Because we want it to be accurate. And, and I've heard people say before that if someone were to testify in court and lied about one little thing, then you would throw the whole testimony out. Or to be more colorful, a lit, little bit of dog poop in the batch of brownies <laughs> ruins the whole batch of brownies. Right? 
Sorry if you're having brownies for Father's Day, all right? Does this disqualify the text? These little points, does it seem to contradict itself? Does it disqualify the whole point of what is being said? I guess today, the first place that I'd like to begin is to give you an image. When I, when I think of the Bible, uh, I think of it not in, in uh, all of the fine little details, but I think about how it is complementing to show a bigger picture. For example, has anybody ever gone to one of like these uh, sip and paint events before? By show of hands, you can raise your hand. All right, we believe it's okay if you have some wine here, okay? All right, uh, so, so if you've been to one of these before, what it is is you have a professional artist that, uh, that is uh, teaching you how to paint something. And you have your own canvas and, and they instruct you like Bob Ross style, right? And like give you all the like, okay, this is how you make this happen. In fact, about a year ago, uh, my wife and I, we went to one of these events with, uh, with a bunch of friends and uh, here were the paintings that we came up with. And I wish I had a picture of the professional painting because it looked a lot better than what we brought forward. And I don't want you to guess which one is mine and which one is Gretchen's, all right? Uh, but you'll notice that, that we were looking at the same exact thing. We had the exact same instructions. You'll notice that that the ducks or the swans or whatever is on the right is a lot better than the smudge on the left, right? There seems to be details that are amplified in one over the other. And today, I want us to understand that when we read the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke in particular, the one that we just looked at, I would want us to have this image of of this, of two people seeing the exact same thing right next to each other, but, but understanding that they are putting definition in one area over the other, that these aren't contradicting things, but rather complementing one another. That when we read these three authors and we understand the context of what they're speaking to, who they're speaking to, and the baggage that they bring forward, it begins to bring greater clarity to the overall message, becomes mutually illuminating, and gives us more clarity of what has happened. Sure, there may have been different things said as different people experienced it. And when I look at that story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the point was not about how many people Jesus had healed or even how exactly he did it so then you could go and do that exact same thing to heal somebody who was blind. The point was that Jesus has the ability to heal. And so while those details give us some understanding. They are not the main point. They drive us to clarity on the main point of who Jesus is. I don't know if you've seen this movie before. Um, It was called Vantage Point. 
Um, anybody see this movie by chance? It was a little bit older movie. It was a great movie. Um, and uh, it goes like this. So the president of the United States, it's a fictional tale, but the president of the United States is speaking at this major event in Spain, and a bunch of people are out, and, um, and he actually is assassinated as he is speaking. And the movie goes on um, from these different vantage points, hence the name, and, uh, and it has these different characters that are introduced, and you see it through their lens. The same exact event through a different lens. So uh, there's a CIA agent, and he's watching it as the president is shot. And then there's uh, a part of the, the terrorist group who was in on it and how they were viewing that. And then there's uh, Forrest Whitaker, who's a tourist. He's my favorite in, in the movie. And he's got one of those old school VCRs, and he's like filming it, if you remember these days, right? And you see it through his vantage point. And the purpose of the film was to show you the different lenses to bring clarity to who the shooter was. It was all pointing to something larger. Each experienced it uniquely, even though they identified unique or different events. But the point of those perspectives is to bring clarity to the main thing. And I believe that's what the synoptic gospel writers were doing in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And even though they have minor differences, they were all pointing to this bigger piece of who Jesus is. But you might be saying, all right, pastor, that's pretty simple. I've read enough of the Bible before to know that it seems to me that that the Bible contradicts itself. That there can be moments and times where the Bible will specifically say this, and then another part, it'll say this, and they are two opposite things. How do you handle that one? Well, I'll give you an example if you don't believe that to be true. In fact, uh, in Matthew 19, 26, it says this, with God, all things are possible. But then in the book of Judges, it says, the Lord was with Judah, and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. And if you look at these two things as they are, it's like God can do everything as long as they don't have chariots of iron, right? Is that what it's saying? And, and, and you're right. When we take small chunks and compare them to each other, it certainly appears that the Bible says one thing here and another thing there. And it's for that question that I want to give like three points to. Because I think it's really important for us that as we live in a world that wants the pure accuracy of a statement for us to have a proper lens of how we look at the Bible and what is its purpose. And so, with that being said, I wanna give you three of them here, and we'll say this, what is the Bible for those who believe in Jesus? I wanna start with the assumption that if you believe in Jesus, that you look at the words of scripture with sincerity and you look at them as valid and important. I'm not expecting the atheist to see any value in the Bible. But for those who believe in Jesus, what is the Bible for? The first one is this. The main purpose of 
the Bible is to teach us about Jesus and his plan of salvation, not ourselves. This is such an important thing. This is so important. The main purpose of the scriptures that we read from and we teach from every single week is to teach us more about Jesus, not just about ourselves. Uh, In fact, if we were to make a movie of the scriptures, the main character is Jesus. Now, you and I are a part of the movie. We're just like an extra in a scene. But, but the main character is Jesus himself. In fact, the, the Bible would say of Jesus that, that he needs to be the main character. And the reason he's the main character is because he's died and risen from the dead. And if he hasn't done that, then this is all silly and worthless. In fact, this is what the scriptures say in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Jesus is just another dude who came in, taught a bunch of cool things, had some really cool hair and sandals, and did all of these really neat things, if he doesn't rise from the dead, then what we're doing right now is just silly. It isn't worth our time. But because he rose from the dead, this book teaches us about his plan of salvation and teaches us more about what he has done. This all rides on the resurrection of Jesus. And it's kind of interesting if you think about it. As religions, major religions... Uh, other major religions would, would have memorials and sites uh, known as like going on pilgrimages, right? To go and see these, these beautiful sites and places that have happened. But it's interesting as Christians that we don't necessarily practice that. We don't have like when you turn 15 that you go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and you go and see the place where Jesus was buried or rose from the dead. And the reason I believe that is to be true is because we hold to his word. What we hold sacred is his teaching, his his plan of salvation, and what he is instructing and teaching us. Which leads to the second thing about about the Bible is this, that the Bible, what it is for, for those who believe in Jesus, is that we believe that it is inspired by God. We believe that God is working in it. Uh, in fact, in 2 Peter, it would say this um, here. Peter would write, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He's speaking of the scriptures, the book that we have, that, that this is uh, inspired by God and working through Men, people. With that being said, I I think we need to have a clear understanding of, well, what in the world do we mean by inspired? Because we get kind of lost in this word. First off, um, inspired doesn't necessarily just mean this. For some, some people would say, well, if it's an inspired text, that it's uh, inspiring, that it's a beautiful 
uh, written play or a beautiful sunset, meaning that because this text motivates me or makes me feel something, therefore it is special. And when we say that the Bible is inspired, yes, we're saying that it is special and it, it does something, but, but that's not fully what we mean by it being inspired. Or some might say that because it was inspired, that it's this like special message directly from God, uh, that the inspiration of Scripture is a pure supernatural intervention that God was writing on uh, some big email, bypassing the minds of, of the writers altogether, zapping the writers with some kind of long-range linguistic thunderbolt. Yes, that was very creative. Void of personalities from all hands that write. And when we say inspired, that's not what we fully mean either. But instead, what we mean by something being inspired is that we mean this. We mean that, that this is a place where heaven and earth are overlapping. Think about this for a second. What we believe and confess by the words of Scripture is that God, who is creator of all, redeemer of all, is that this is a place where heaven and earth are meeting. That, that it is an inspired text. Now, what we confess and believe here at this church is that this is very mysterious. We recognize that, that this is 100% written by God, but also 100% written by men. That's why we can say with confidence that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, while they saw the same thing, they amplified or, or elevated certain pieces. But what the main point of what it is teaching us is the plan of salvation, a promise of where God is working. Another place where heaven meets earth for us that we celebrate every single week is in the Lord's Supper. That's why here as a church, we have this moment, by the way, it's coming up, where where once again, heaven and earth will collide. In the Lord's Supper, where we take God for his word, when he says, this is my body, this is my blood, and we know that you're eating some styrofoam bread and some cheap wine. But we know the promise that God says, that he is in those very things. Heaven and earth are meeting. In the third place, third point of what is the Bible for, for those who believe in Jesus, is that we believe that it is authoritative for our lives. The words that we read here in 2 Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Notice the words that that the scriptures say there, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction. It gives us an understanding, a, a training in righteousness, a right way that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What we believe is that the, the scriptures give us, they shape and mold us, they are authoritative for us. And that's why, as a church, we dig in deep to these words. 
That's why we wrestle with these words in so many ways. That's why we don't just settle at a simple, easy understanding, but we dive in deep into the language that is there. And we continue to study it, continue to go with patience and and to understand more fully what God has given us. It's not simple or easy, but it's what God has promised, the place where God has promised to work in. And so, it's the Bible for those who believe in Jesus. We believe that it teaches us about his plan and salvation. We believe that it's inspired by God and we believe that it's authoritative to our lives. Can it seem to contradict itself at times? It may appear to be that. But my hope would be that we would see that larger plan that it's pointing to Jesus. To finish, um, I don't know if you've uh, heard of this guy, uh, Chuck Colson. It's a great photo of him, by the way. Um, Chuck Colson uh, <clears throat> was, uh, was a part of the Watergate scandal that happened in the early 70s, uh, an attempt to, uh, well, a successful attempt to reelect Richard Nixon, and um, you know that that was a corrupt thing that had happened. Uh, Chuck Colson was quoted as saying that he would step over his hurting grandma in order to reelect Nixon. He was quoted as saying that, and he did that. <laughs> Uh, he was a part of a really powerful group of, of men in the United States that uh, did a really, really bad thing. And uh, it was a conspiracy to get Nixon re-elected. And, uh, and when word kind of got out that this had happened, uh, the people who were involved in this scandal uh, got together very quickly. And uh, they came together and uh, came up with a plan of uh, how are we going to answer these questions and all these sorts of things and, and trying to come all together to uh, make sure that the, the lie that they agreed to would be the consistent thing that they would hold on to. Well, Colson uh, goes on to say that uh, that lasted about two weeks uh, because agents came in, they separated them out, they dug in with questions, and they came to find out that eventually one of them was quick to say, like, hey, I'm just looking out for myself in this, and, you know, here's all that happened, and blah, 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 and it all went down. And Chuck Colson spent seven months in prison as a result of this. And in the process, side note, of uh, going to prison, uh, he came to faith uh, during that time, and he was a part of starting a ministry known as Prison Fellowship, which is a wonderful ministry that visits uh, people in prison. And later on in life, uh, Colson would go on and speak and do all these kinds of things, and, and somebody came forward to him and asked him uh, this question. He said, uh, as someone who was a part of a conspiracy, do you think the story of Jesus could have been the same? It's a really interesting question. 
In fact, if you'd like to read the article of where this comes from, it's on, your, uh, on the message notes here. I put it on there from the Washington Post. Colson goes into some detail about this. And, and his response is simply this, uh, no way. When, when you're motivated by a lie, it will break down and people will cave or seek to save their own skin. As he said, it took less than two weeks for that to happen in Watergate. And what he goes on to say is that when you look at the story of Jesus, you look at um, a group of people that, that walked with him, that, that were there at the resurrection. What's so fascinating is that 10 of the 11 of those first disciples, they were martyred. They were killed because of their belief in Jesus. Think about that for a second. Colson understands that, that eventually, if it's a lie, we'll, we'll kind of like save our own skin. But for these people, they died for their faith to preserve that message that was brought forward. See, I get it. The Bible can be incredibly confusing. There are still moments and times where I'm like, man, I have no idea, Lord, what you are trying to say in this passage. I get it. It is filled with all kinds of context and culture and what can appear to be contradiction. But I need you to hear this. I need you to hear this, that while it is filled with those things, what it is clear on is the love that God has for us. The clarity of scripture is God's love, his sacrifice, his resurrection for you and me. That is the good news, the beautiful news, and that is what the scriptures seeks to teach us every single moment, is God's plan of salvation. I get it that it's confusing. I pray that we would be clear on the love that God has for us, and that as we come forward with contradictions and confusing statements, May we lean in as a community of people together to better see God's plan and how he's working. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are one who is a God who loves, who brings care and compassion and has ultimately died for, for us. And I pray, God, that as we look at at your word, at your text, and all the baggage that that brings, I pray, God, that, that we would point people to your plan of salvation, the love that you have. It is messy. It involved death. But we know that the promise is that there's resurrection. And so I pray, God, that in the midst of challenging questions and big concerns. May we not forfeit how you promise to work as well.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.